uh, Cody this afternoon in Florida. He's at his um, his uh, youth workers conference in Florida right now, and uh, it dawned on him that uh, there might have been uh, a wrong some wrong information given in the bulletin. Uh, the gag. I can't say that with a straight face. The the gag activity tonight with the youth is was is canceled since he's out of town. I don't know what gag is, but it involves pizza. And I don't. It, but it's canceled tonight. It'll happen next week. So that's straight from uh, Cody Spear tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at Second Corinthians chapter 12 tonight. Hope everyone has your Bible open and your outline. Let's begin with a word of prayer and ask God to bless us as we study and then get into the text. Great Father and, and Lord of our lives, we submit ourselves to You in this hour, Father, to learn from You as, as disciples of Your Son Jesus and, and recognizing that You have a voice. You have a voice that is not only beautiful, but it is essential to life and it sustains us in this life, Father. And so our prayer is, is that we will pay all the more attention to it, knowing that, that in it are words of life and wisdom and words that will sustain us in all moments and all circumstances by giving us the kind of wisdom, Father, that we need to bring honor and glory to You. So we pray for the eyes that see and the ears that hear in order to discern it. But Father, we, uh, we ask not just for understanding, but for transformation, to be, to be transformed by these words from Paul. And it's our prayer, Father, that they will make a difference, that they will change us, that they will help us to understand how to deal with all the, the adversity and the circumstances that we face in this life day to day. So bless us in this way, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the screen behind me and at the top of your sermon outlines, I think I put it up there. Maybe if not, you can write it. You're going to read the words, thankful for God's grace. But I would add a question to that. Why? The answer to that question might seem so obvious that you might say, you know, what is really the point of that? We all know that we're saved by grace. You might say that I'm thankful that God loved me enough to save me even though I do not deserve it nor could I earn it. I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's why I'm thankful for it. I would say that that's absolutely correct. Well done. But that's really only the starting point of the effects of God's grace in your life. Here's a statement that I do want you to write down on your outlines. Again, it's up on the screen. The grace effect, that is the way that grace impacts our life, it begins with human redemption. You are saved by God's grace. What it is that Jesus achieved on the cross by the shedding of His blood, the giving of His body, the giving of His life, His suffering that the, the, the Gospels make much of, that He suffered according to Scripture for our sin. All of that that was accomplished on the cross in our place because of our guilt for our own sins, that is a beginning place. Human redemption. We have been brought out of slavery from sin into a, an adoptive relationship with God. But that grace effect that begins with human redemption continues with human reformation. That grace also changes us. The question is why? Why do we need grace beyond the experience of salvation? Well, one reason is because the Bible in one place and our own life experiences teach us that living in the kingdom of God does not in any way prevent pain and weakness in this life. Some of us have been believers and disciples of Jesus for a lot of years. We've been faithful members of, of Jesus' church. 
And after decades, we find ourselves coming into sort of the, the, the crucible of suffering and experiencing it in ways that we've never experienced it before in our life. But one of the reasons that biblical Christianity has to be so drastically distorted is in order to sell it to mass markets, and these markets want a power to escape weakness. But Christianity, true Christianity, offers power, something completely different. It does offer a power, but it's the power to endure pain and weakness through God's grace. Now, in the passage that, uh, that Ted read for us, what we're encountering is how grace sustains Paul through one of the deep valleys of his life. Now, what is that sustaining grace? Well, here's the answer in poetic form. It's on your outlines as well. It comes from the pen of John Piper. He says, Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in darkness is there to sustain. Twenty years ago, uh, I received a phone call from a missionary from the conservative Christian church in the northern part of Brazil, right at the very tip-top in kind of no man's land. And he called, uh, and we had only met once at a, at a previous missionary conference with a favor to ask of me. One of his colleagues had become very, very ill, and he had flown back to the United States. He had been diagnosed with cancer and was given just a few short weeks to live. The news was, was tragic and even more tragic because he had a 15-year-old son. And he had just been given the news, and he was flying back to the United States by himself to be with his dad. And uh, what Dave uh, Meadows was telling me on the phone was that uh, this young man had an eight-hour layover in Brasilia, where we were living in, as missionaries at the time. And he wondered, would I me mind meeting this 15-year-old kid who was flying for the first time by himself around you know, uh, Brazil and then up into the United States, to meet his father in Louisiana, would I mind meeting him to make sure that he arrived safely and knew the gate for his next his departure for, for Miami? And that, uh, you know, he, he'd be fine, just leave him in the airport for the eight hours. Well, he, he flew into town later that week, and I, you know, just the thought of a, of a 15-year-old kid, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we, we see one side of teenagers, but uh, you know, there's nothing really more tender than a 14, 15-year-old uh, teenage boy's heart. And uh, he flew into town, and I, I spent the day with him. Just, just, just I cleared my schedule, spent the entire day with him, took him to lunch. I was just there really to waste time with him. And, uh, you know, we talked uh, about what he was going back to face, and, uh, I, you know, I prayed with him, and when then we had some fun, and then we ate some more. And I put that boy on the plane to the U.S., and I never saw him again. A couple of weeks later, Dave uh, called me to tell me that uh, the father had passed away and to, to thank me for spending time with the boy and, and to you know, just let me know if there was anything that uh, he could do for me. You know how those conversations go. Well, we speed forward two years later. Uh, we're now living and working with a church in Lawrence, Kansas. My middle brother is getting married, and so we're on our way from uh, northeast Kansas, just near Kansas City and Lawrence, we're making our way to Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're trying to drive through the night. It's, uh, it's 4 in the morning, and we spin off the road into a ditch just outside of Dalhart, Texas. And uh, no one is hurt, praise be to God. Our, our car is, is able to run even though we had, we had put it sort of halfway through a barbed wire fence and through a ditch and had spun you know, out of control for a while. And, and, but our car is able to limp into Dalhart at 4.30 in the morning. 
and in the middle of the night, we're going to a town where we know no one. And so I tell Ellen, I said, you know what we need to do? Maybe we'll, let's just pull into a quick stop. I'm sure there's going to be law enforcement at the quick stop at 4 o'clock and 4.30 in Dalhart, Texas. And sure enough, the deputy sheriff was there getting his coffee. And I walked up to him and I introduced myself. I explained the situation. And he goes, hey, you know what? I'm a deacon with the Christian church. And, uh, you know, you can spend the rest of the night in our church's parlor and then you can get the car worked on the next day. So I thank him when we follow him over to the church. He opens up the door with his key. We walk out. He flips on the lights. And I see in the foyer a picture of the missionary from northern Brazil who had called me about his dying colleague a couple of years earlier. Thou art Texas. And I said, I, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I, I know him, Dave Meadows. We were missionaries in Brazil also at, at the same time. And, you know, and this deacon and I, we, we talk about it for a little bit, and he catches me up to, uh, up to date what has happened to this family after the death of their, this husband and father. Uh, they, they knew about it as well because of their connection with Dave. And we spend the night and we get the car fixed and make it on to Albuquerque. As I see it, to run into a deacon in the middle of the night in a quick stop in Dalhart, Texas, from the conservative Christian church whose missionary I knew in Brazil was and is to me more than a coincidence. But let's not be naive. I know that if God can ordain that the first person I run into in the middle of nowhere, Texas, in the middle of the night after a car accident is a believer with roots in the restoration movement to boot from a church whose missionary I knew in a foreign country on another continent, then this God, who is able to do that, is fully able to prevent that accident in the first place. Is that not true? It's not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress but this. The grace that orders our trouble and pain and then in darkness is there to sustain. In our text, God ordains that Paul has a thorn in the flesh and he will not remove it as an answer to Paul's prayers. And here's what God says in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. To which Paul responds, therefore, since that's true, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. It's not grace to bar what is not bliss nor flight from all distress but this. The grace that orders our trouble and pain and then in darkness is there to sustain. In our passage, in Paul's personal experience of sustaining grace, I think he makes the following points. Uh, the first one is this. You, regardless of what's going on in your life, you always look to God who never stops being sovereign over your life. I think it's really important that we understand what the word sovereign means. It means that God is never not in control of circumstances. Double negative for emphasis. He is never not in control of circumstances. It means that God never runs out of authority to act in your personal valley. It means that God is still the most active 
forceful, vigorous, and potent dynamic in your life. He is King. And He is King without limits when we feel like we are hemmed in on all sides by darkness. John writes, Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them. Because the One who is in you is greater than the One who is in the world. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that's a point that we have to get right in our life. The foremost and simplest lesson of faith is this. You look to God in all circumstances. You look to God in all circumstances. The Psalms, as an example of God's Word, are the most, are for the most part a collection of distress calls to God. They are the 911 calls to God in the Old Testament. They are anguished crying out to God. And one of the great lessons of the Psalms is that they teach me that my good days, and especially my bad days, are lived out in the light of the knowledge that I have of God. And this is precisely what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians. This knowledge of God that is deep and profound and wonderful and awesome and at times fills him with fear is the same knowledge that drives him to God when this thorn is sticking him in the flesh. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. The language of crying out to a sovereign God. And what he is precisely and I think grammatically pleading for is that he be given relief from the messenger of Satan who is tormenting him. Because Paul recognizes that behind every thorn is a thorn bearer. And he also recognizes that the thorn bearer is not to be handled by human power. And so what Paul does is he turns to a loving and compassionate and sovereign God who through His grace will make Him strong and sustain Him. Which leads to a second point. It's not just looking to God, but it's depending on God's power. There's an axiom um, about parenting that I found to be very wise. The axiom says you do not prepare the path for your child, but you prepare the child for the path. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, everybody I think has heard that. What we see unbelievably so often these days is parents trying to prepare that path for the child. In other words, the parents, we parents, try to dull the sharp edges of life, remove all of the trip wires, and in essence, create this, this pain-free and problem-free path so that our children never have to worry about anything. It's like growing up immune or, or protected from skin knees. The point is, is it's really impossible to do that. It's an impossible task as the path, as you know, is rather unpredictable, uh, unpredictable and in reality is very unwise. And sometimes the greatest lesson to build the greatest character in life are ones that are learned in the valley. You know, I, I, um, uh, I wrestled through high school in, in four years of, of wrestling, lost five matches. I played ten years of football, only one losing season. I'll tell you this, the most profound lessons that have stuck with me today are the ones that I've learned from losing and not winning. Of understanding who I really am in light of all of those things, and especially as I grow older, and, and what is at stake is more, is, is more precious to me. Learning all of that in light of who I am and what all of this means in light of eternity and what is available to me because of the cross of Jesus and the Spirit inside of me and because of this Word that I've laid up in my heart and my mind, just like you, what we're learning is something much more precious about God in these kinds of events. And Paul has rightly recognized that there is more to the picture, spiritually speaking, than just physical torment. 
And, and, and Paul's understanding of what's happening to him, there's this evil force behind the torment. And so Paul has done the faithful thing in turning to God in prayer about his suffering. And the most unbelievable thing is that God answers his prayer. And God, you know God, God is righteous and holy. God gives him the perfect answer. And you know what the answer is? Say it. No. He is not going to take it away. But he says instead, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I don't know if you get anything else out of this lesson, but this. Satan is not the only one at work in Paul's life or yours. God also is at work. And there are two reasons for the no. First, Paul's pride is hubris. Sometimes leads to arrogance and self-sufficiency. Paul's pride and God's grace are incompatible. Paul was in danger of becoming conceited because of the special revelation that we read about a special revelation of heaven that he describes at the beginning of the chapter that had taken place 14 years earlier. He says in verse 7, But to keep me from being conceited, that very thing, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. The reason he's given a no is because his pride and God's grace are incompatible. But a second thing, he had to learn that God's grace and power were sufficient for the problem. So do we. To begin life through a new birth into God's kingdom is dependent on His grace as we've, you know, as we've, we talked about this morning and talked about in numerous sermons. But to grow and to continue in kingdom life, to, to grow up inside of the body of the church and in, in light of God's grace in the community also depends upon His power. It's dependent on His grace. And that is a kingdom truth that you and I both, we constantly have to be reminded of. You know, Paul had already in 1 Corinthians told them that his preaching was not very powerful or eloquent. He said, you know, I'm not all that great of a speaker, not very eloquent. You know, my speech is not very powerful, but I will tell you this, Paul says, all right. I do depend on God's power to get the message across. And Paul had written earlier to the church in Galatia to remind them that their spiritual development was actually a fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the fruit blossoming in their life because God's Spirit was in them and they were cooperating by walking in, in agreement with that Spirit. And Paul reminded the church in Ephesus that God would strengthen them in the inner man through the power in the Spirit. And he prayed specifically that they would understand that with their minds and believe it with their hearts. You see, Paul already knew that grace didn't stop at the baptistry but continued through the rest of their life. And then, and then there's this, this day 14 years earlier where Paul got to see things that men are not even permitted to talk about. And Paul himself wrote that the danger in that was that he might become conceited and prideful. And becoming prideful, revert to old ways of thinking about the worth of human merit and human achievement and the, and the power of, of the human mind, what he's able to conjure up between his two ears or what he's able to construct between his two hands. That he would revert to the old ways of thinking about all of that before God and that that would negate the grace in his life. 
And so God did not remove the thorn. And God taught Paul to depend on Him in all circumstances. That it would be His grace that would sustain him. It was His grace that would strengthen him. There would be a power in that grace that would come to rest on Paul, in Paul's heart, in his mind, wherever it was needed, that would sustain him through all of this. So you look to God always, you depend on God's power, but then you also, number three, anticipate a change in your heart while you're in that valley. I, I, I hate suffering, especially watching somebody else or uh, an animal suffer. I, suffering is... Um, just a hateful thing. And when we read these pages... Uh, you know, 2,000 years separated from them historically, you know, that's, that's not remove ourselves so personally from that, that, uh, that text that we don't understand that we're talking about a human being who's being tormented. Paul is tormented. And, and, and Paul is, is recognizing at the same time that the source of the torment is Satan. And he turns to God to take that torment away. And God says, no. God says, no, because His grace and power are sufficient to get Paul where Paul needs to be. And what Paul learns is that he needs to lean on God. And the blessing of leaning on God was a changed heart. In the middle of the valley, before there was a light at the end of the tunnel, before there was any relief or a definitive answer of where the exit would be, there's a change of heart. And he says, I will boast. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then without a shadow of a doubt, I know that I am strong. Notice that Paul did not say that the pain and the torment went away. But what did change was his dependence on God to get him through anything. Even when the pain was 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 bearing down like an anvil. God not only got the glory and the praise for saving Paul on the road to Damascus, but God also got the praise for sustaining him in his weakness. I don't know about you, but I'm I, I'm so encouraged to know that in the, in the middle of this, this, this dark circumstance, whatever it might be that, that I encounter, that you encounter in this life, that's tormenting us, that's a, that's a whisper maybe in our ear of the lies of the evil one, dis- trying to disconnect us from God's grace, trying to, to, to uh, focus our eyes on an unbiblical picture of what the saved look like in God's eyes. I, I don't know what it is. But it's an encouragement to know that, that God is so powerful and so sovereign that His power is not limited to mountaintops. 
But His power is even in some ways more powerfully felt in the deepness of that valley that not only will sustain me in grace, but will cause me to rejoice in Him even more. Not rejoice in the pain, but rejoice in Him even more. It's not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then, in darkness, is there to sustain. If there's a way that our church can, can minister to you tonight, perhaps with prayer or with counsel, or perhaps tonight is the night that you would, through faith and in baptism and confession and repentance and believing the gospel, would have your life changed forever, receiving the beginning part of that grace and being redeemed only to experience later, maybe even later this week, the grace that reforms you and helps you to understand the presence of God and the power of God even more acutely and keenly and wonderfully in the middle of the darkness. If that describes you tonight, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front during the singing of the next song. Come down and talk with them. Come down and talk with me. Let's do it now as we stand and sing together. story 